Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Just wanted to share a few thoughts with you this evening on um, some thoughts here in, in John chapter 8. We're kind of informally um, going through the book of John. I have a Charles um, Andrews and I study uh, with some other people from time to time on throughout, throughout the week, uh, each, each week, and we're studying through the book of John, so a lot of the lessons that I'm uh, bringing you are from, from our studies, and uh, like I said, kind of informally um, going through this, but this past week we looked at John chapter 8, and particularly the first um, 11 verses here that deal with the adulterous woman. It's probably uh, a familiar passage to us. Um, probably heard a lesson or two uh, from this passage in, in your um, time as a Christian, but just wanted to share a few thoughts and maybe refresh your memory and um, look at the occasion for Jesus' teaching on this and uh, draw some lessons out of that as we, as we try to do each and every time is to is to see how this applies to us. And I think there's some good lessons that we can learn uh, from our Lord's teaching and the events that take place here. So John chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 11. I want to go ahead and read, since there's not a, a tremendous amount of verses here. Um, read this in context, the whole passage, and then we'll come back and, and go through verse by verse. So John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, But then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman called in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and when he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Like I said, a familiar passage to us. A wonderful example of how uh, the... The variety in which Jesus teaches, and, and, and we see the, the, the human side of him in just the acts and the things that he does. And so we get some insight and some um, wonderful little descriptions that are in here that help us to, to grow in our appreciation of Jesus and, and who he was. So let's start off by looking at the occasion in, in which this is, uh, is offered. Um, it says there that Jesus, after went out to the Mount of Olives, he came back into the temple. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. If you look back in chapter 7, in verse 2, 
It says, now the feasts of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was at hand. This is one of the, the feasts uh, that the Jews um, celebrated. And this was a time that many would be in Jerusalem, and, and so our Lord is there. And, and Jesus really didn't spend a whole lot of time in Jerusalem proper, but there was occasions that he went there, and this is one of those. And of course, at the end of his life, when the, the trial will take place and all the things that will happen there in Jerusalem. If you come down to verse 14, it says, but when now in the of chapter 7, verse 14, but when in the, now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So this is the occasion in which Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem. He's there for the Feast of Booths. And he's in the temple teaching. And we have there in chapter 7 some things that he is teaching. And we get to chapter 8. This is, again, um, where he is. It seems that from verse 8 it says, but, when the Jews went out to the, but Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, and early in the next morning he came again into the temple. So it seems that this, um, uh, the, we see the days passing that are, that, are, uh, that are here, but this instance is during that time that Jesus is in Jerusalem. So he's there in the Feast of Booths. And as we mentioned, he was, te- he was teaching in the temple. From those same verses that we read, we understand that that's what he's doing. In verse 2 in chapter 8, it says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. This is a little glimpse into our Lord and seeing that, that he's here in the temple, and he's teaching. He takes the opportunity Um, as these are gathered around and gathered to him to teach them. And so we see our Lord always uh, engaged in teaching and always engaged in being concerned about people and wanting them to know more about him and about uh, God the Father. So the scribes and the Pharisees, um, they bring a woman to him here in in verse 3. And it says that the woman... Uh, has been caught in adultery, and, and it emphasizes there that she was caught in the very act. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring uh, this woman to her, to him, and it's clear uh, from the context and from direct quote here what they're trying to do is they want to put Jesus to the test. If you look there in verse 6, it says, and they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. So it's very clear what their motives are. And this is not unusual. This is um, kind of uh, the standard uh, MO, the modus operandi for the scribes and the Pharisees. They're always looking for an occasion to try to, to, to catch Jesus, uh, either in a lie or catch him you know, saying something or doing something so that they might have grounds in which to, uh, to persecute him, to to hold him uh, to trial. So this is clear what they want to do. They want to put him to the test. So this woman is caught in adultery, and the law says that she should be stoned, and they wanted Jesus to make a determination. It's very clear from from the charges that they bring with them that she's been caught in adultery in the very act, and they remind Jesus that the law of Moses says that they should stone such a woman. And they want Jesus to determine what to do. So this is the part of their trap, is that they have found this woman, and they want Jesus to decide. We're going to talk about the, the, the trap that's here in just, uh, in just a moment. So what does Jesus do? 
He stoops down and he writes on the ground. Now, some naysayers, some um, who want to belittle our Lord might say, well, he's searching for an answer. He, he, he's stalling. He's trying to come up with something that he might say. And so he, he stoops down and writes on the ground. Was Jesus ever at a loss for words? Certainly not. I think more we see the human side of him, that we see him stooping down to write on the ground, and it forces them to press the issue. We look there in verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them. You almost get the idea of like he's just kind of leading them a little bit into this, stirring up their emotions a little bit, perhaps. Um, we don't know exactly, we're not told, but we do see that their reaction is that they're persisting, they're continuing to, to ask him. So here's the trap that they're, that they're trying to, to put Jesus into. If you will remember, in this day and age, the time that we find ourselves here, that Roman law forbade execution by the Jews. This we know because of the very fact of how Jesus will be put to death. Remember, they're going to have to take him before Roman officials in order for the Roman officials to carry out his execution. That was the way that the laws were set up. Remember that at this time that uh, Jerusalem, Israel, exists um, not the way that it used to, but as a, as a, a Roman territory under Roman, ultimately Roman authority. And so some things they allowed them to practice and some things they didn't. Well, Roman law forbade them from putting someone to death. So here's the trap. So they say, this woman should be stoned. They bring her to Jesus, and they want Jesus to decide. So if he says that she should indeed be stoned, then he's going to be transgressing Roman law. Here's the other side of it. The Jewish law required execution. So if Jesus says to not execute her, then he's breaking the law of God. So you see the trap that they're setting for him. Pretty ingenious to give him credit. But of course we know Jesus is not going to fall for this trap, and we know that he is above all of this. And so we'll see through his actions exactly what he wants to do, or exactly how he uh, turns this back on them. But from Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, this is where we understand about uh, the penalty for committing adultery. It says this, There is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife. One who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Now, what's interesting about that is what it says about who should be put to death. It's not just the adulteress, but also who? The adulterer. So why did the scribes and the Pharisees only bring the woman? Where is the adulterer in the trap that they're setting for the Lord? Because if she was caught in the very act, shouldn't the adulterer be coming along with the adulteress? An interesting question. We don't know the answer to it. We might speculate that this is all a setup, a big setup. We could also speculate that maybe they're protecting the adulterer. Certainly, corruption is rampant in 
this day and age, even amongst the scribes and the Pharisees. But we're left to speculate about that. But it is interesting, and it may have something to do with how Jesus ultimately reacts to this, as to why only the adulteress is brought to him. So Jesus' response in verses 7 and 8 as we mentioned there, as they persisted, he straightened up and said, He who is out sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Some translations probably read a little differently. He who is out sin, cast the first stone. That's a popular um, translation. But we get the idea, don't we? What is Jesus' response? So the, the law of Moses says that this one is to be put to death. This one is to be stoned to death. And Jesus says, okay, fine. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And we know from the, from the way the story reads and from history that she indeed is not stoned at all. Verse 8, he says, and he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. So we just see, I think, the, the human side of our Lord in this um, then he stoops down and he's writing in the ground. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? <laughs> also lets us know that, that Jesus was a learned man, right? And he was able to write. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? It's immaterial to the story, but it leaves, it leaves the, the mind to wonder. So Jesus, in those few words, in, in the... Uh, almost disengaged kind of way that he seems to be handling this. Look how beautifully he handled it. They want to stone her. If you want to stone her, fine. If you let the one without sin throw the first stone. And of course they have no answer to it. Look what their response is in verse 9. It says, And when they heard this, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the oldest ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. So their response, did they pick up stones to stone her? No. They started going out one by one. John mentions here from the oldest to the youngest. Why might that be? Again, we're left to speculate. It might be that understands that the oldest ones know when, they're, uh, when the game is up, right? They might be the first to realize, he's got us. I have no response to that. I'm out of here. That might be our human uh, response of the day. Nonetheless, the oldest ones leave and down to the youngest ones. And so they're left there, Jesus alone with the woman. And look at the interaction that he has with the woman here in verses 10 and 11. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Again, don't we see the, the, the way in which Jesus is, uh, is handling this whole situation almost, almost as, he's di as if he's disengaged from it. Where did they all go? Did no one condemn you? No one throw a stone at you? And she said, No one, Lord. And then in verse 11, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Now, critics, scoffers also want to say that um, 
Jesus is, is overlooking sin. That because of what she had done, that she was worthy of, um, of punishment, and Jesus has overlooked that. We'll talk about this a little bit more at the end of our time, but of course we know that's not true. And of course we understand in Jesus' proclamation, he says, go your way from now on, sin no more. So it's clear that he understands that she is caught in some kind of sin. It may be trumped up charges on, the, on her behalf or whatever it might be. But we know our Lord and know his ability to know her heart. And he says to her to go on her way and sin no more. So it's not that our Lord is overlooking sin, but there's more to it than just simply that. And we see how Jesus responds to this and, and his actions that, that tell us about that. Simple little story, isn't it? Just a few verses. A few things that are, that are happening here, but as is with Scripture, there's a lot in it. Let's talk about a few of the lessons that we can uh, draw out of this. The lesson we can probably clearly see uh, most uh, in our own lives is the understanding that we have all sinned. In looking at the, the situation here and, and this, this poor woman who has been caught and uh, is, is uh, on the borderline of being put to death, we can empathize with her, can't we? Why? Because we have all sinned. And Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 lets us know that, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do indeed. We do indeed fall short of the glory of God. So we can empathize with her. In 1 John 1 and verse 10, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us, or the truth is not in us. We shouldn't walk out of these doors and, and say to the world, I'm not a sinner. I haven't sinned. It's not true. So we empathize with her, don't we? We empathize with this woman and understanding that, and indeed we have all sinned, and there's a judgment that we face. We talked about that this morning in our lesson. But there is a judgment that faces us. So we need to make sure that we have the right attitude towards sin and make sure that we understand what is said there in the, the verse previous to this in verse 9 of 1 John 1 about confessing our sins and he is righteous uh, to forgive us of those sins. We need to make sure we have a good handle on that and understand our response to sin. We also can understand through the events that take place here that, that we all need grace and mercy. You know, we, we see this so well uh, demonstrated in how our Lord deals with this woman, how he shows the grace and mercy of our God in dealing with her. In, uh, look over in Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. In understanding how God operates in, in, in grace and mercy when it comes to us, Romans is such a good place to see that. Throughout the whole book here, his grace and his mercy are demonstrated. But here in chapter 3, beginning of verse 21, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who, be, uh, who, um, who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We read that just a moment ago. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in, the, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God has passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, grace and mercy are required on God's part, aren't they? Grace has given us something we don't deserve. And mercy is withholding something that we do deserve. You know, the, the free gift of God, God's grace has given us Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And God demonstrates his mercy that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his mercy by the very fact that we can be redeemed of those sins. We can be forgiven of those sins. Because sin bring forth, brings forth death. Because we have sinned, that's what we deserve. But his mercy has interceded for us and given us a way of salvation. As Jesus demonstrated, we must use righteous judgment. Look over in uh, Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 7. You know, we've talked about this not too long ago. Um, we were, had a series of lessons on the Sermon on the Mount. But here in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, talks about how we ought to judge. It says, do not judge lest you be judged. Now the world would like to stop there, right? The world would like to stop at that verse, don't judge me or else you're going to be judged. Well, there's a little more to it. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see the speck that's in your brother's eye. You see, our Lord is not saying we can't judge one another. Our Lord is saying we need to judge righteously. And make sure that we're not being hypocritical in our judging. In John chapter 7 and verse 24, our Lord says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see, that's the kind of judgment that we ought to be engaged in, is righteous judgment. And what dictates righteous judgment? Well, that's judging by the word of God. We need not step outside the bounds of the word of God in order to judge someone. If I hold this as my standard, and my judging others is held to this standard, I know that I'm going to be held to that same standard. So judging is okay if done in the proper way. If done in the proper motives and all of that. Most importantly, it needs to be righteous judgment. And we can count on our Lord in demonstrating and showing exactly what righteous judgment is. One last thing I wanted to, to consider is that there's something in this text here that gives us a glimpse of, of our Lord and, and His understanding of what His role was during His time on earth. It was interesting... Uh, Words that are exchanged and things that take place here. Look back again in chapter 8 of John, verse 11 in our text. 
as the, 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 the people have left, and it's, and, and it's just Jesus and the woman here, and he asked her, did they not condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And what Jesus, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? There's a couple of things that we can notice about this. One is that Jesus didn't come to earth to be judge, to be a judge. We can look at passages like John 3 and verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now it's interesting, that comes, we know John 3, 16, don't we? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Um, the next verse is interesting, isn't it? It says, God didn't send his Son in the world to judge the world, but to what? But to save the world. See, Jesus realizes what his, his mission is on earth. And his mission while his time on earth is not to be a judge. Now, there is coming a time when he will be a judge. And he's going to judge the world. But that's not the focus of his ministry on, on, on the earth. His focus on the ministry was to save man from his sins. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 14... It says, uh, if you remember the context here, someone asked him, uh, teacher, will you help me decide in, in the, the, the inheritance dispute between me and my brother? Notice Jesus' response to that. Man, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? See, Jesus recognized what his role was, and the world saw him as a teacher and, 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 and a man of knowledge and and faith and, and power, and they want him to be that ultimate judge and to, and to, you know, set people right in this world. We've looked recently with the Apostle Peter, the, the uh, discussion amongst the apostles, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You see, the, the world has a very different view of, of our Lord and his time on this earth. But we can see passages like this that say, man, who appointed me to judge or arbiter in your life? It's not part of his mission. Now, it doesn't preclude the fact that indeed he does judge. If we look down in, in John chapter 8, verse 15 and 16, it says, You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, and I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. So even though Jesus... Um, uh, puts off this, these opportunities when people ask him to judge on matters of the world. He, he's saying, I'm, I'm not here to judge, but even if I do, I'm going to judge according to what my God, my, my Father, God Almighty, has shown me. I'm going to be in accordance with him, because he and I are one. Look over in chapter 12 of John. This might be the definitive answer to what we're talking about here. John chapter 12, verse 47, beginning, says, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in that last day. You see, Jesus recognizes his mission perfectly. He says, 
um, that he who hears my words and rejects them, he has the one who judges him. It's not that I have to sit in judgment of him, it's the word of God that's going to judge him. So Jesus recognizes that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And as we mentioned, there's going to come a time when he will sit in judgment. We read that from Matthew chapter 25, when the nations will be gathered to him. And he's going to separate the, the ones, the righteous on the right, and those who practice lawlessness on the left. There's coming a time for that. During Jesus' time on earth, his ministry was to seek and save the lost. As Luke 19 and verse 10 tells us, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his mission during his time on earth. So in this little interlude here in, in John chapter 8, we see an example of a time when our Lord is getting people, hopefully, to see the bigger picture. To look and see that these things of, of the world, not overlooking sin, but rather not bogged down in the things in the, uh, of this world and missing the bigger point of what Jesus is here to do. And that is to seek and to save that which is lost. A simple little story about this woman that was caught in adultery, but some powerful lessons that we can learn from it. Hope this has been encouraging to you. We offer an invitation, as we always do at the end of our time together. If um, you find yourself uh, lost in your way, if you're not as close in the relationship that you would like to be with Jesus Christ and God the Father, make that right. It's still daylight a few, uh, a few more hours. This day is still called today for several more hours, so... Make the changes necessary. If you need the prayers of the congregation, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.